This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hey guys, we're live. We are uh, working on streaming um, the Brian Drip sentencing hearing right now. And we're just working on getting the right thing up here. To the victim impact statements, the state, given that Mr. Drips indicated go. to pre-sentence investigators that he has little or no memory of the murder basis um, prior to the victim impact statements if the if the court would allow that i'm not sure what that accomplishes but i don't have any objection mr archibald that's fine your honor all right go ahead thank you your honor your honor the following facts are derived from the preliminary hearing transcript at which mr drips was present and represented by counsel if this case went to trial, the state would intend to prove the following facts beyond a reasonable doubt, just in brief. On June 13th, 1996, Angie Dodge was found dead in her apartment on I Street in Idaho Falls, Idaho. Angie was partially dressed and had multiple incision wounds and lacerations on her neck and torso. This included an incision that began at the left side of Angie's neck under her jaw, below her left ear, and continued all the way across her neck to below the right ear, severing all major muscles, arteries, and veins of the neck. This incision nearly de decapitated Angie. There was also a stab wound to Angie's chest and breast area that entered the chest wall. Angie's death was ruled a homicide, and it was determined based on the state of undress and the semen on Angie's body that she had been raped prior to the murder. Stab wounds on Angie's right hand showed that she had tried to defend herself from her attacker. Investigators collected forensic evidence from Angie's body, including hairs and semen. A DNA profile was created from the forensic evidence. The defendant, Brian Drips, was questioned shortly after the homicide. He lived across, across the street from Angie at the time of the murder. He told investigators, and he later he told investigators at that time that he had been intoxicated with alcohol and controlled substances at the time of the murder, so he did not see anything that evening and was not sure where he was or what time he returned that evening. In 2019, a genetic DNA profile was created, which in May 2019 led to Brian Lee Drip Sr., the defendant, as a possible suspect. A surreptitious DNA sample was collected from Mr. Drips. This sample matched the DNA profile that was created from the semen found on Angie's body. Drips was taken into custody and questioned. Drips ultimately admitted on video that he went to Angie's apartment on that night with the intent to rape her, that he took a knife, and that he did, in fact, rape Angie. Drips admitted that he held the knife to Angie's throat during the rape and cut her throat. 
Trips indicated that no other individuals were with him at the time of Angie's murder. Angie died from the loss of blood as a result of the multiple stab wounds and incisional wounds to her chest and neck inflicted by Brian Drips, the defendant. Based on this evidence, a jury could find beyond a reasonable doubt that Brian Drips Sr. committed murder in the first degree and rape. Specifically, as alleged in the information, a reasonable jury could find that the defendant, Brian Lee Drips Sr., on or about the 13th day of June 1996 in the county of Bonneville, state of Idaho, did unlawfully kill and murder Angie Ray Dodge in perpetration or the attempt to perpetrate rape as charged in count one of the information, and that the defendant, Brian Lee Drip Sr., on or about the 13th day of June 1996 in the county of Bonneville, state of Idaho, did penetrate the vaginal opening of Angie Ray Dodge, who resisted but whose resistance was overcome by force or violence as charged in count two of the information. Thank you. Thank you. And as the record reflects, you did plead guilty to those charges. Yes, Your Honor. Thank you. Right. So your victim impact statements, Ms. King? Yes, Your Honor. You want to to introduce those? Yes. Todd Dodge. Would you like me to list them all at first, Your Honor, or just one by one? Uh, One by one. Thank you. And Todd Dodge is the brother of Angie Dodge. Help me to hold the mic, Your Honor, if that's okay. Honorable Judge Tooney, thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak before you today. I would first like to read a quote that I feel is relevant to today's proceedings. Quote, It's not the person refusing to let go of the past, but the past refusing to let go of the person, end quote. Author unknown. I'm going to attempt to take the last 25 years of chaos and try to turn them into a comprehensive and coherent victim impact statement. My name is Todd. Dodge. I am the second oldest of four children, and Angie was the only sister that I had. She was nine years younger than me, and because of our age gap, we were not close as children. I have fond but few memories of her, which I hold close to my heart. I loved her. And I painfully, mournfully wish I wasn't robbed of the chance to get to know her more deeply. Today, I long to hear her voice and see her smile. I, like many others, am a forgotten victim that has sat in the shadows, hiding my own pain, sorrow, anger, and devastation. I have participated 
in numerous court proceedings, driven hundreds of miles, and moved across state lines, trying to give support where I could. I had given a victim impact statement in a trial that resulted in a false conviction for the murder of my sister. Often, I was persecuted for my efforts throughout the last 25 chaotic years. It is sad to now know that those previous efforts were all in vain because Angie's voice is still silent. Your Honor, I have suffered from PTSD, depression, anger, anxiety, and antisocial behaviors as a result of the chaos of the last 25 years. I often feel like an extra in a movie as I watch another chapter of my disturbing life unfold with each new television series or news article that showcases my family and the tragic death of Angie. I have to experience again and again painful childhood memories and years full of abuse and neglect I endured at the hands of my parents. When childhood photos appear on the television screens or newspapers glamorizing our family and this horrific event that is a complete facade and hides the reality of it all. The broadcasting of my childhood is a ceaseless and tormenting reminder of the physical and emotional scars I carry from my childhood. I am forced to remember my youth and the eight inch scar that I wear on my back. I am forced to remember the brutal, murderous death of my sister. I am forced to endure the chaos and to mourn and grieve for her again and again and again and again. I have ached in anticipation for too many years for justice to come. Your Honor, it is justice we seek here today. Because of Mr. Drip's premeditated actions, he sentenced me to a lifetime of hell. And so far, I have served 9,126 days. Almost 25 years, and while I suffered my sentence, he, the murderer that he is, walked free. And while he walked free, the tidal wave of chaos he left in his wake continued to destroy and scar lives. I feel that there are others that should have an opportunity to have their voices heard as his victims. Victims like myself that have been directly impacted by Mr. Drip's murderous actions. Although he did not murder them, he took their lives from them. They are not permitted to speak today and are mandated to sit in silence. This injustice is alarming and tragic, Your Honor. To begin, Chris Tapp should be given the opportunity to voice his nightmare to this court. At 20 years old, he received a sentence of 30 years for a crime he did not commit. He served and lost 20 years 
of his life because of Mr. Drips. The former jurors that convicted Mr. Tapp should also be here, all victims of a process gone bad, regular people deceived by a process that convicted an innocent man and robbed him of 20 years, forced to now live with their decision and their guilt, their voices matter too. Michael Usry Jr. should be given an opportunity to share his story. The second man wrongfully connected to Angie's death, his ordeal lasted a horrifying six weeks. He and his family's privacy invaded. He will forever be tied to the chaos that has become Angie's story. Over 100 men subjected to DNA testing over the last 25 years, their privacy was violated, their characters questioned, and activities scrutinized in the search for Angie's murder. These men are not allowed to speak before you today, but are all victims of the chaos that Mr. Drips left behind. The Idaho Falls Police Department, the initial detectives and investigators, and many other law enforcement support personnel and other individuals who spent countless hours on this case had their careers and reputations destroyed. They endure the wrath of public scorn and shame from the awful burden they carry over the incarceration of Chris Tapp. All should be here speaking of their tragedies and the torment from the chaos. Jack Dodge, Angie's father, should be here today, but he passed in 2004. Just like the picture, his memory has faded from us. His sorrow is forgotten. Jack was a retired Navy veteran who struggled with his own childhood demons, yet completed two successful tours in Vietnam, which produced even more demons. At the time of his only daughter's murder, he was a recovering alcoholic, finally sober. However, soon after Angie's brutal death, he began drinking again. He died a lonely, heartbroken individual. Personally, I feel Mr. Drips is the final demon that destroyed Jack and bears some responsibility for his isolation and death. The more I wrote my impact statement, Your Honor, the more I began to realize the enormity of that problem and the absolute devastation and chaos that Mr. Drips created in my life and many others via his selfish, murderous actions. He dropped an atomic bomb in the center of our family and our community. He destroyed the central core of our lives and many others when he slaughtered Angie. The enormity of his actions reached across county and state lines. The shock waves of that chaos are still being felt to this day. I have searched in vain for adequate words to describe the devastation and chaos. Then I realized words were insufficient to demonstrate the absolute horror of the circumstances 
in pursuit of these words, I realized I had lost sight of what this was really about. You see, I have the opportunity to verbalize before you today. Angie's voice was severed. Cut from her body, silenced forever, 25 years ago by Mr. Drips. Really, she is the one who should be here speaking, telling her story of the true suffering, brutality, butchery, murder, and rape that took place at the hands of Mr. Drips when he executed his premeditated actions. It's disturbing that in the weeks prior to Angie's death, she was fearful that someone was stalking her. An anonymous letter left on her car scared her enough. She reached out to one of her brothers who drove to town to check on her. My little sister was living in fear. And then on June 13th, 1996, she was found brutally murdered and raped. And if the court will allow, and with some assistance, I ask you to permit me to display a graphic representation of the enormity of the problem. The picture represents the devastating chaos I've had to deal with with the last 25 years. Your Honor, I would like to present it now. Will the court please grant permission and assistance to display this? It's hard to know what you're going to show me. Any objection, counsel? All right, I think I've, I have not seen the photograph, but uh, you want? I believe it's, I believe it's the, the same that have been provided in the pre-sentence investigation. I think it would benefit Mr. Dodge's statement. Right, go ahead, Mr. Dodge. That is Roger Dodge, the uh, brother. We'll hear from next. Meet Angie, my little sister. From receiving her death notice to moving items out of Angie's apartment where this butchering took place. And more recently, the guilt of really realizing I had an encounter with Mr. Drips the day that we boxed up her things. It continually disturbs me to know 
Mr. Drips lived just across the street and planned this horrific event, stalking, preparing, and then executing his evil plan. He watched the chaos of the aftermath unfold, feigning innocence, while we, her family, emptied her apartment, grieving and mourning what he stole from us. The smells of the crime scene and cleaner are still thick in the air. That crime scene is speaking, Your Honor. Angie is crying out, asking you to hear her voice, to hear her words of how this crime impacted her. The size of the photo pales in comparison to the enormity of the situation and the enormity of the horrific nature of Mr. Drip's actions. He violently slit her throat from ear to ear and watched as she lay there aspirating on her own blood. The horror and pain she experienced haunts me as an older sibling, as a brother, as a human. Mr. Drips did not call for medical assistance. He did not seek out medical care so that she would be able to live. No, no, he did not. He raped her and he gained control and silenced her. Likely while she was laying there, he raped her. It is disturbing to scroll through Mr. Drip's Facebook posts and read that some of his friends refer to him as Sling Blade. This is before Mr. Drips was arrested. Sling Blade, the movie, ironically came out in 1996. It depicts a male that uses a knife and viciously murders several individuals. Is this just a coincidence or just another level of the chaos? Not only did Mr. Jurips destroy the sanctity of Angie's life, he further destroyed my immediate family members. He destroyed my children's trust and safety of their own childhood. To this day, my older children who are reaching 30 years of age do not visit the Idaho Falls area. It is a dark reminder of where something bad happened to their aunt they never got to know. To them, Mr. Drips is the boogeyman. There is only one man that is responsible for the complete and utter destruction that has taken place. The collateral damage of Mr. Drips' actions extends far and wide. The physical and monetary devastation that has been inflicted upon us in this community is astonishing. For the last 25 years, Mr. Drips has stayed intentionally hidden from us. Mr. Drips never intended to come forward. Mr. Drips was completely happy living his life of lies while those in Angie's circle swirled in chaos. He kept silent for 23 years while the chaos in our lives raged on. Had it not been for advances in forensic technology, Mr. Drips would never have been apprehended, would never have confessed, would never have come face or to face those whose lives and community he destroyed and brutalized. He has no intention to right his wrongs, holds no remorse, offers pathetic excuses, and recently made comments to the PSI investigator that he only deserves 10 years.
He continues to victimize Angie, our family, and this community. Mr. Drips is the definition of evil. He never wanted to confess his crimes to this court or take responsibility for this atrocity against us and this community. He was completely happy to sit back, retire, watch another man do it few time for a crime that only Mr. Drips committed. He was happy seeing our family and other families in complete ruins, devastated and torn apart by the chaos that he left behind, showing no remorse, no regret, no concern for anyone but himself. He has been the director in this real-life horror he created for us all. This past February, Mr. Drips was given the opportunity to confess his crime, to stand and allocute his guilt. Instead, Mr. Drips gave a lackluster, half-hearted, pathetic, non-committal allocution statement. He had to be prodded by the court to give additional details, details that still fell tremendously short of the horror and rage you can see that he delivered to my sister. He has the audacity to plead for mercy from this court, whereupon he showed Angie none. Our family, Chris Tapp, Michael Esri, and IFPD, and many, many other men, absolutely no mercy. He has the audacity to ask you to send him to a special medical unit. What special medical attention did he provide Angie? He used the excuse that he was using cocaine and alcohol at the time, which is yet another convenient attempt to excuse this horrible premeditated crime. He provides no evidence to prove his statement. Are we to believe he was on cocaine and drunk for weeks while he stalked and insidiously planned to violate Angie? It's simply Mr. Drips once again downplaying and excusing himself for his role in this crime and the chaos that has ensued. It is offensive. I can look back and complain about the last 25 years. I can blame the process, the police, and the misleads, and the wheels of justice It is nothing compared to what Angie, my little sister, had to endure that night. Ultimately, the only person that bears responsibility for this absolute chaotic destruction, loss, and pain in my life and many others is Mr. Drips. It lies solely on his blood-soaked hands. Your Honor, I beg this court to deny this plea agreement. I am not in agreement with it. I voiced my concerns to the prosecution during mediation. I was discounted. I was deceived. I was dismissed. Once again, forced to sit in the shadows, made to feel like my voice, the voice of others, and especially Angie's voice, does not matter. This plea agreement falls tremendously short of the debt Mr. Drip owes. I ask you, Your Honor, to give Angie her voice back. 
give back to Angie what Mr. Drips severed 25 years ago. You are the only one that has the authority to do so. I ask that you make Mr. Drips sit for a jury trial. I ask that you allow a jury of his peers to determine his fate. If Mr. Drips can't give a proper allocution of the events that took place on June 13th, 1996, then let the crime scene speak for him. Let Angie finally have a place at the table and not on the floor. Let her speak from the grave. Let her voice be heard about the absolute brutality she suffered that night. Let the wrongs of the past be corrected so that all victims can finally live in peace. Let the true story of these horrific events finally be revealed to tell the real story that Angie has wanted told for so many years. Let her voice be heard and let the chaos in. Your Honor, thank you. Next statement. Roger Dodge, Your Honor, another brother of Angie's. Sorry about that. Uh, thank you for this opportunity to speak, Your Honor. My name is Roger Dodge. I'm Angie's older brother. 25 years ago, this was uh, and still is the most devastating thing I've ever been through in my life. I consider Mr. Drips to be the very definition of evil. This is it. I know his family would probably disagree with that. You know him differently than we do. I would like to point out, had he been apprehended 25 years ago, there's a couple of people sitting in this room today that wouldn't be here. I'm not picking on them. I'm just pointing it out. His son, Brian, his daughter, Haley, wouldn't be here today. I object. It's not a proper Mr. Dodge, the purpose of a victim impact statement is to identify how this crime has affected you personally. So I am going to have to ask you to try to limit it to that. Okay, sir. I apologize. Two weeks before Angie was murdered, I went to visit Angie with my ex-wife. And she was pregnant. One of the sweetest things that I can remember is Angie bending over and kissing my ex-wife's belly. She could not wait for my daughter to be born. Miriam was born on the 17th, 
Angie was buried on the 18th. As you can all imagine, that was a very devastating week for me. And it still is. I cannot believe how long she's been in a casket laying in a grave she shouldn't be in. I too feel that a court hearing, a jury trial, would be more beneficial than what we've had here. I, I disagree with it wholeheartedly. It would be more closure. Not only for myself, I think it would be justice for Angie and for this community, actually. To be robbed of a jury trial is just wrong. Uh, I don't see how else Mr. Drips can face this. I really don't. When I replay in my mind the crime scene photos that I've looked at, and the morgue photos, it's indescribable. All you could want is justice for the crime. That's all you could ask for. When you look at those photos, her slit throat, blood between her legs, a large slash on her breast, knife wounds in her hands, Blood on her face, in her hair. Anyone in this position would want justice. It's, it's, this is not a mystery. Obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty. It was Occam's razor all along. He lived right across the street. Absolutely unbelievable. And here we are today. Only just just barely getting justice just since 2019. I find that very unbelievable. Your Honor, I'll just finish here. Uh, I want justice for my sister. She deserves that. Having the death penalty taken off the table. Hey, we were supposed to be in a jury trial this week, if I'm not mistaken. I was looking forward to that. I hope that we still get that. Thank you. Ms. King. Carol Dodge, Your Honor, the mother of Angie. Ms. Dodge. Now you're going to have to, I can't hear you. You're going to have to speak into the microphone. For the past 25 years, I had an impact statement prepared, but I couldn't have said it it's better than my son Todd. Said it all. The pictures that are in our mind, Angie's crime scene pictures, the way you left it, 
the last night I saw her, shortly hours, Brian drips before you brutally killed her. She was at my house. Last words to her were, I love you. Hold her in my arms. Never again did I ever get able to hold her again because of your actions, your evil actions, your selfish actions. And I can't forgive you. Ever. I just said, five and Roger said it all. You have shattered our family. It may have been broken before it happened, but it is literally shattered. And there is no way to pick up the pieces ever again. You, Brian Drips, deserve eternal life. You think your pain here on earth? And look up at me. We have to have go through 25 years of pure hell trying to find justice. <coughs> Looking for you. Now you have to live. Is that it for the event the victim impact statements, Ms. King? Yes, Your Honor. Mr. Archibald, do you have any witnesses or anything like that? Your Honor, uh, Council Elisa Massa has an argument and a video presentation to present to the court. And after she's completed, then I'll make a brief presentation as well. Our witnesses which we have. Here, but they have submitted statements to the court. The court can acknowledge that those statements presented have been read to the court. I have reviewed those statements. All right, Ms. Soth, go ahead. You know, just, I'm sorry, just not to interrupt, Ms. Massoff. Uh, the state had argument as well. Well, is the court going to hear? Yeah, we'll hear Mr. Archibald, and then I'll turn it over to you. Okay, thank you, Your Honor. I wasn't sure the were.
Brian made this picture with oil pastels when he was 11 years old. He was described that year by a teacher as a pleasure to have, a, have in class and considerate of others. In our presentation today, I'm going to talk about his childhood, his fatherhood, what happened in 1996, his health, and his character. Brian was born in Kirksville, Missouri in 1995. His mom was 17 and his dad was 19. The picture here with the circle 1964 is his father, Philip. He and his, his mother and father developed, divorced before Brian was born and his father never had a presence in his life. Somebody's in my slide Brian was adopted by Gerald Dritz when he was about three years old. And at age 10, Brian found out that he was adopted. He was moving back to the area with his family and his mother did not want him to find out from someone else that he had been adopted. So he learned that his real father was Philip Usry. Philip did not want a relationship with him. When Brian graduated from high school, he called Philip and Philip said, I don't have a son named Brian and I don't want a relationship with you. Philip died at age 45 of lung cancer and throughout our investigation of Brian's paternal family, we've been able to learn very little about uh, Philip. What we do know is that Gerald Drips continued to be a presence in Brian's life, in and out of his life, but is a presence to this day. And Gerald Drips um, produced with Linda, his sister, Nikki. That relationship went through divorce, reconciliation, and many moves. In these next pictures, as I show Brian growing up, you will notice that there's a map behind them. And in the map behind each one is the location that, that Brian was living um, at the time of the photo. In this photo, he was a, a, a young baby and he was living in Kirksville, Missouri.
In this photo, he's in Granville, Illinois, as a big brother to his younger sister, Nikki Drips. And here he is back, and here he is in Walla Walla, Washington, where Gerald was stationed before he was deployed to Vietnam. In 10th grade, Brian moved to San Bernardino, California, again, so that family could be by Gerald. Brian attended high school at Eisenhower High School with 2,000 other students that year. The size of the high school was overwhelming to him. The atmosphere and the culture change shocked him and scared him. By the time he lived in San Bernardino, in this picture here, he had moved over 18 times in his young life. It was soon after graduation that Brian joined the Marines in 1984. He did basic training at Camp Pendleton and was stationed in both the Philippines and Okinawa, Japan. This picture shows the route of his travels as an adult. Brian ultimately ended up in Idaho in the early 1990s and started working in construction. He met his one and only wife, Nicole, in Idaho Falls in 1995, and they had their first child, Courtney, in 1996. By 1999, Nicole and Brian divorced. Nicole left in 1999, three children, a six-month-old, a one-year-old, and a two-year-old. She left them all behind, and Brian and his mother raised them together. To this very day, Brian does not understand why his marriage to Nicole fell apart. He never remarried. He never really got back into the dating scene. He focused on fatherhood and working. From 1999 forward, Brian made it a point to make sure his three kids stayed in one place. He had the help of his mother in raising his children, and he traveled back and forth from work to Caldwell so that his kids had stability. Brian showed his children what it meant to be a hard worker. Here he is on a job work site in the northern Idaho area. He was present for things like child-related graduations and special events. 
Kaylee graduating. And he walked his daughter Haley down the aisle for her wedding. So the big question that's lurking when you look at this life is what happened in 1996? And in three months in 1996, things really fell apart for Brian. On April 3rd of 1996, Nicole left Brian um, and he began living on I Street. He didn't have the skill set to deal with loss. He didn't know what to do. He didn't understand. And he turned to alcohol and, and drugs. In May of 1996, he was continuing to cope with the loss and Nicole's leaving at eight months pregnant by, by, by drinking and drugging. And on June 13th, when the crime committed, he drank so much and closed the bars and imbibed in so much cocaine that he was peeled off the floor of the bar before he left that night. So when he reports that he doesn't have a clear memory, it's a frustrating report, but it's a very realistic report because the depths of the intoxication. And when you look at this period of time and the short window of loss between April and June, and you take the timeline and you pare it down, we're looking at a window that was a horrible, horrible window of time it was about 20 minutes on one day in June 13. Over the years, Brian's body has literally fallen apart. He had a very well-respected career and was known as a superintendent on large concrete and heavy construction jobs. He built an addition on his mother's home. He built animal corrals. He fixed cars. But over time, all of that became impossible because of his health conditions. When you look, as I talk about this health, when you look at these slides, they're broken in the bottom shows, breaking the, this into categories, diabetes and heart conditions, joint pain and surgery, digestive and nervous system, migraines and mental health. And in the four categories, there's a red line that depicts over the course of his medical records and event. As I talk about the events, I'm only talking about some of them, the major ones, um, but all of these slides reflect out of thousands of pages of medical um, records, the events that have occurred in his life physically. So uh, a first significant event is in 2005, he has a rota rotator cuff repair. In 2006, he has a colon colonectomy um, and is suffering from diverticulitis. And in 2010, he becomes formally disabled due to severe body pain 
um, and continued documentation of high blood pressure. In 2012, when he just doesn't understand what's going on with his body, he formally receives a diagnosis of ankylosing spondylitis, and he learns that it's a condition where the body attacks itself. Ankylosing spondylitis causes the fusing of the bones or other hard tissues and inflammation of the spinal bones or vertebrae. His doctor documents that he has one of the very most severe cases his physician has seen, and he is in excruciating pain every minute of every day, every minute of every day. It affects every joint in his body and it drastically impacts his mobility. It causes his hunchback and is related to many other conditions that he has. It is related to a specific gene that he has known as HLA-B27. In 2013, he has suffered a lifetime of migraines that have been treated by the Spine Institute. He has shoulder surgery and a hip replacement. In 2014 and 2015, he's treated for depression. He has a left hip replacement, knee replacement, congestive heart failure, and type 2 diabetes. And that throughout his medical records, there's a documentation of depression uh, that he's suffering in large part um, with a variety of things that are going on in his body and an inability to know what is wrong and an inability to figure out anything that can potentially help him. February 2016 is a very large event in his life when he has an acute heart attack um, and stents um, are put in and he's experiencing in that year um, paralysis of his lower extremities. The other thing that was significant in 2016 is that because Brian has this real desire to be a hard worker and enjoyed very much his physical labor uh, on construction sites, building dams and sewer treatment uh, facilities, he went to college. He went to Stephen Senegar College to get a computer science degree. And in 2016, he had 98.6 credits of a computer science degree and a bachelor's is 120 credits. So he was just short of about a year of having his bachelor's degree when the heart attack completely derailed him. In 2017 and 2018, he had very significant and frequent hospitalizations for falls. His falls were unexplained. He passed out. He continued to lose motor skills and he had an endoscopy for severe stomach pain. And severe, severe stomach pain and daily stomach pain is something that he suffers with to this day. In 2019, his physicians began um, giving him a prescription for a Remicade infusion for his ankylosing spondylitis symptoms because they were continuing to worsen. He has an infusion, infusion every four weeks, um, and it is the only thing 
that provides any sort of relief for his every moment of pain every day of his life. Recently, while incarcerated, he had another heart attack in November of 2020, and he had a placement of five stints. He also, while incarcerated, um, has suffered from kidney stones and had another endoscopy for severe stomach pain. So when you look at all of these variety of things going back to 2005 to current, um, and those are, again, are just the ones that are the highlights of a really horrible um, medical history. He is uh, suffering to a very great degree significantly, and the 20-year sentence and agreement that we discussed takes that into consideration that um, it will be almost impossible for him to outlive that 20-year sentence. And over the course of Mr. Archibald and I's representation, uh, we've watched him continue to decline, and we have had multiple discussions about the fact that we could get a call any day that he did not make it through the night um, while incarcerated and in jail because his health truly is that fragile. As the court knows, several experts, psychiatrists and psychologists evaluated him extensively. They looked at all of the medical records. They looked at all of the discovery. We provided absolutely everything that was available to these experts um, and Dr. Camille Lacroix reported in her um, list of his diagnoses to the court that at this point in time, he is taking 16 different um, medications, including a high amount of um, Remicade uh, that he's infused with. She noted that his uh, full list of medical diagnoses is seven items long. And uh, Dr. Watson, who did extensive psychological testing on Mr. Drips um, and, and came in and um, spent time with him in the jail for several days, giving pen to paper tests and a lot of physical tests, noted to the court in closing, he wanted the court to know <laughs> how precarious Mr. Drips' medical condition appears to be. So a, a question that everybody has about this case is given the time between 1996 and now, what was Mr. Drips out in the community doing? Was he hurting other people? Was he doing other bad things and committing other crimes? Did he lead, lead a life of violence? And the answer to that is no, the opposite. Led a life that was the opposite of what happened in 1996. Ryan took his kids on vacation. He took them to Disneyland. 
And his oldest daughter, Courtney, wrote to the court, I'm beyond thankful that I had Brian as a father. He taught me most everything I know today. Gerald Drips, um, the man that he considers to be his father and calls Pops, uh, describes that he was a good person and a good father and a good son. And Gerald Drips is the, the person who had, uh, in Brian's life, had a severe motorcycle accident and was incredibly disabled. In this picture here, he's sitting in a wheelchair, and it was Brian who um, helped take care of him and nurse him back to health. And to this day, Gerald Drips is living um, with the family and with all of the Drips children. So they're spending um, holidays together. His sister, Nikki, wrote to the court how stunned she was to learn of, of this crime that never in her life would she believe that her brother was capable of harming someone in this manner and that um, he was a wonderful brother to her, a wonderful uncle to her children, and she loves him um, knowing this because the person that she grew up with uh, she didn't see as capable of doing this. And one of the more compelling letters was from his friend, Scott. Scott Erickson, who spent hours <laughs> commuting with Brian in a vehicle and spent hours working on job sites with, with Brian. And, and he wrote to the court that, that he and his wife just have struggled with the person that they know and the person that they've spent time with and how it could be. And Scott said to the court in his letter, I'm gonna love Brian no matter what, because the Brian Drips that I know is not capable of what he has admitted to. It's not who he is. It was a horrible window of time in 1996, but it's not who he is or who he's been the last 25. Another friend of his, Rhonda Taylor, a female who spent many hours with Brian and hours in a car, said to the court, this is someone who never made me for a minute feel insecure or feel scared. He always made me feel safe, and I didn't think that he could do anyone like harm like this. Another Good characteristic of Brian is that he's an animal lover. And you can see in these pictures um, throughout his life, he's had, he's always had pets um, and his pets are very important to him, whether it's building corrals for the horses that his children have ridden or um, goats or having dogs um, at his, at his house. Um, he is an animal lover and animals love him. And significantly, he has had his first grandchild. Um, his daughter, Haley, who is here, had baby Jameson um, just a couple of months ago. And um, Haley wrote also a very compelling letter. And the interesting thing about Haley is that Brian is very soft-spoken, very quiet, um, does not use a loud voice. The way you hear him speak in court, which is softly and with few words, 
that's Brian's character. And his daughter, Haley, his youngest, is a lot like that. But she wrote a letter about a dad who would stand in line with her for hours to wait until the next Twilight book was released because she loved Twilight books. And he would stand in line for hours with her to get tickets to the movie Twilight as those movies were released and they could go watch them. That's the dad that she knows. And that's the dad that she wants to be a part of her son, Jameson's life. Importantly, Dr. LaCroix concluded in her report for the court after she spent hours interviewing um, Brian, after she spent days looking at records, after she uh, reviewed all of the testing that uh, Dr. Watson had done, she concluded that in the event that he lives 20 years, his lack of violent offenses, his health, his age, and his character all place him in a low risk to reoffend or ever hurt anyone else. Brian did commit one of the most serious offenses possible in 1996, but he didn't repeat it. He didn't hurt anybody else. He was a devoted son, a solid father figure, a solid friend. He kept his kids in one home in one location, and the love and the stability that he gave to them they, in return, maintain and give back to him. And before I defer to Mr. Archibald, who has a few comments, and ultimately to Brian, who's going to talk to you, I want to express that in my 21-year career, it's been a privilege to represent him in this case. He's been cooperative. He's been collaborative. He's been honest. He's so incredibly remorseful. And he's kind. I'm proud to stand next to him. And I encourage you to follow this plea agreement. Thank you. Dr. Archibald, your recommendations for sentencing? <clears throat> Thank you, Your Honor. I, too, uh, am asking the court to accept the plea agreement. The agreement is a compromise. It was initiated from a mediation, well-qualified mediator. Co-counsel and I and Brian are Hearing today that some of the Hutch family is happy with the division. I understand that, that it was hard on our side too, but uh, agreeing to 20 years for my client is, is like a death sentence. He spent two of those 20 uh, 
realistically, does he think he's going to get out in 18 years? I think his body's going to hold up. So it was difficult on our end to do it. Agree to 20 because he believes it is a death sentence for him. So, sure, he wants to stay optimistic. He wants to stay positive for his children. Of course, when we reach plea agreements, they're, because they're compromises, both sides have to give up. Both sides have to uh, reach somewhere in the middle. And we believe that this plea agreement that does that. We believe that the plea agreement uh, follows the four factors of sentence. This court is obligated to <laughs> follow that this uh, sentence of 20 life would deter Brian and others similar crimes. It would rehabilitate him. It would punish him. So it's a long time, and the court has been asked today by by some of the Dodge family, and I respect them. I respect their opinions to set aside this plea agreement. Let's go to trial. And some of the uh, factors in going to trial were, were the same for us. We had a pending motion to suppress his confession. Believe the police made mistakes in interviewing Brian. That motion uh, will be withdrawn uh, because of this guilty plea and sentence. That if we go to trial, then we'll take that issue back up. We had a motion to change venue that was granted. Trials aren't going to be here There are uh, many more motions before. Get to trial. You know, so many motions after uh, the death penalty. Why? Because the death penalty is the ultimate punishment for the state to kill a person. So many appeals, so many procedures. It's become so painstaking that the state of Idaho and other states are taking a look at why, why do we pursue the death penalty? Justice delayed, it's justice denied. I think that's some of what the Dodge family is suffering from the delay, the delay of justice. And so, and we're asking the court to accept it, even though we compromised as well. Brian was truthful and he said, I was hoping for 10 years. Maybe we can live eight more years. Willing to accept 18 more as he knows that that Dodge family needs closure. This happens. One of the interesting things, first things that Brian said to me when I met him two years ago, is uh, when we're talking about his declining health, was not the That his declining health was God's way to, of punishing him for what he did to Angie. And so I could tell the court that he has felt bad, felt horrible 
felt remorseful about what happened, even though I can't remember all the details. For those of us who deal with people under the influence of alcohol and cocaine, understand that. We understand that that's what alcohol and drugs do. Is that he he uh, feels bad for what happened, and he, of course he wishes he could take it all back. That he did not have to be here today. So that's why I'm asking the court to accept the plea. Thank you. Ms. King, your recommendations? Thank you, Your Honor. This Sunday will be the 25th anniversary of the rape and murder of Angie Dodge. Angie was only six, only 18 years old. She had just moved into her own apartment, starting out in, a, in her young adulthood. She was enjoying time with her friends and family. She was working. Her life was really just beginning when it was tragically and brutally cut short by Brian Drips on June 13th, 1996. Drips entered Angie's home without her knowledge or permission and committed two of the worst crimes that somebody can commit, rape and murder. Not only did he commit those crimes, but those crimes were committed in a particularly particularly heinous manner. Entering into the home of another person and attacking a sleeping and unsuspecting victim, then raping and nearly decapitating her when she tried to fight back. Mr. Drips told investigators and the PSI investigator that he remembers some aspects of the rape. He remembers the intent he had to go and rape Angie and his his taking a knife to do that, but doesn't remember a lot of details of the murder. In fact, Mr. Drips told investigators that he believed Angie was still alive when he left. Now, if we're to believe that statement, this means that Mr. Drips made the conscious decision to leave Angie without calling for help, knowing that she was grievously injured, knowing that she was suffering, knowing that she very probably would die alone in her bedroom. Now, Mr. Drips has stated that he was under the influence of alcohol and cocaine at the time of the rape and murder. And there is some independent evidence, at least, to suggest that Mr. Drips was intoxicated that night. We only have his word for the level of that intoxication. And even if Mr. Drips was voluntarily intoxicated, this does not excuse his actions and his brutal rape and murder of Angie. We know from the statements to law enforcement, the statements he's made to the court, that this was not a completely black hole of memory. He did remember some of the details. He remembered that he did rape Angie. He went over with the intent and he did cut her. Now, several character references, as, as stated by the defense, were provided in support of Mr. Drips in the PSI. And defense, defense counsel has presented a lot of information about his life and who Mr. Drips was. These references speak about Mr. Drips in glowing terms. They talk about a person who's considerate of others, a kind person, a gentle person, a loving person, responsible and respectful person. 
PSI investigator noted that it is incredibly difficult to reconcile that person that is spoken about in those letters in defense counsel's presentation with the person who brutally raped and murdered an 18-year-old girl. Definitely, it is incredibly hard to reconcile that. But what about the other 23 years? From the state's perspective, it's hard to reconcile the person in those letters, the person in the defense counsel's presentation with that 23 years as well. Because it is about 23 years between the murder of Angie and when Mr. Drips was arrested for that crime. And yet, in that 23 years, Mr. Drips lived every single day of that period of time. He lived his life in those 23 years as though he had never taken Angie's life. He lived every day of those 23 years with the opportunity to show that when sober, he is every man, every, every bit of that person, of that man that is described by his family and friends. He had an opportunity on every single day of those 23 years to show himself to be a man who takes responsibility, who takes accountability for his actions, even the worst one he's ever committed. He lived every day of 23 years with the opportunity to show he's so incredibly remorseful. And yet, what, he, what did he do? He lived every day of those 23 years as if he had never taken a life. He lived every day of those 23 years as though another man was not sitting in prison for his crimes for 20 of those years. And Mr. Drips told investigators that he had seen videos about Angie's murder. He knew someone was serving time for his crime. And yet every day he woke up and refused to take accountability for his actions. He lived his life and kept silent about Angie's murder for those 23 years. He went on vacation with his family, got to enjoy time with his children, his mother, his stepfather, his other family members and friends. As defense counsel indicated in their presentation, Brian was there for all the special events. So what, is, what, what does that tell us? That every day for 23 years, he got to enjoy that time, enjoy those special events, knowing that there was a family suffering, that there was a family, the Dodge family, who did not have the truth, who was fractured and searching for the truth and not finding it because the truth remained hidden and silent in Mr. Drips. Angie's father, Jack, didn't get to walk her down the aisle. Mr. Drips got to walk his daughter down, down the aisle. Angie's mother, Carol, didn't get to smile at her at her wedding. <coughs> her brothers didn't get to be there to support her. They're all here today. You heard from two of them, Todd and Roger. Brent is also here. All three, her older brothers. None of them got to have special events with Angie. None of them got to have another 23 years of days with her. So for those 23 years, he had a truth he refused to reveal. Mr. Drips 
And the state's opinion spent those additional 23 years showing exactly who he truly is. A man who could rape and murder a young woman and then refuse to accept accountability for his actions, refuse to show remorse until after he's caught and knew it would be to his benefit to do so. Where was that remorse, that incredible remorse, while the Dodge family was suffering without answers for 23 years? Where was that consideration of others? Not just on the night of Angie's murder, when Mr. Drips indicates he was under the influence of alcohol and drugs, but on every single day for the next 23 years that no remorse was shown and no accountability taken. This was not just about 20 minutes on June 13th, 1996, though of course that started it. That's when Angie's life was taken. That's when her family truly began to fracture. But it's also about every day after that. Every day of a different character being shown. So in the state's view, Mr. Mr. Drip's actions are far from taking responsibility or showing true remorse for his actions. Now, much of the information contained in the PSI, as well as a lot of the information presented by defense counsel, focuses on Mr. Drip's current medical conditions. From the state's perspective, these do not, certainly do not lessen the culpability of Mr. Drip's crimes committed 25 years ago. But they are relevant to the sentence, and as defense counsel indicated, into the agreement that was made during mediation. Because they do suggest that the 20 years suggested by the plea agreement, 20 years fixed, in effect is materially similar to, the same to, a fixed life sentence for Mr. Drips. And that is part of what led the state to agree to that decision and that plea agreement. That given Mr. Drips' health, medical issues, the state does not believe there would be a materially material difference between a 20-year fixed life 20-year fixed sentence and a fixed life sentence at this point. Additionally, as defense counsel indicated, uh, though the state's evidence is strong in this case, there are always potential obstacles, motions, things of that nature, especially in a case that has gone on this long, a 25-year-old case with a lot of other wrinkles in it. So the state does believe that the plea agreement reached during the mediation is fair and appropriate in this case for those reasons, and because it will be materially similar to a fixed life sentence for Mr. Drips at this point. I do completely understand the Dodge family's difficulty with this agreement. This, this agreement. This has been an incredibly long and difficult journey for them. This has been delayed justice. It was, the state was pleased that the Dodge family, Carol, Brent, Roger, and Todd specifically, were able to participate in the mediation process. But I do completely understand that this feels like coming too little, too late. This was a, this was a horrific experience for the Dodge family and continues to be so. But the state does believe that that is a fair and appropriate sentence in this case and would ask the court to follow that plea agreement. And just in conclusion, Angie's life 
is what we need to need to remember here. That's that is what this is about. And it came to a brutal, tragic end far too soon in 1996, 25 years ago. And yet I think we also need to remember, as a couple of the victims brought up today, that Mr. Drips, Drips' actions did more than rob a young 18-year-old woman of the rest of her life, of the start of her life. But those actions and Mr. Drips' refusal to take responsibility for those for 23 years also caused lasting harm to the Dodge family, to Angie's family and friends, to the community. Thank you. Mr. Drips, you have the right to make a statement. Is there anything you would like to say? I'll be brief, Your Honor. I'd just like to say that I am sorry. Didn't intend for this to happen. Imagine what um, grief I've caused over the last 25 years. I'm not even imagining if it was one of my own, you know, I can't even imagine. Can't even imagine what it would be like. Because at the end of the day, it's not the same as what the reality is, what pain and hardship I've caused. Wish we would have if a chance at a do-over. Because I would do over that day. Never would have gone over inside a permit. Just wish I could do over that night. I'm sorry. No, you'll never forgive me, but I'm sorry. I don't know what to say. No, it's not right. I'm sorry. All right, appreciate the recommendations, comments, the victim impact statements are all very helpful. Factors I consider in a sentence in our protection of society, deterrence, punishment, rehabilitation. I would say that punishment's the primary focus uh, on this type of sentencing. Uh, of course, I reviewed the pre-sentence report. Uh, it is you know, accurate that but for a very horrific and unconscionable crime, uh, relatively crime-free. So I'm not necessarily looking at uh, rehabilitating a career, a career criminal, but it is uh, a crime worthy of some significant punishment. You know, 25 years is a long time to wait for some type of closure on such a crime, on such a, uh, a brutal crime. Uh, and only due to some advancements and technology good police work are we here today, which could pin the DNA to the suspect, defendant, and ultimately the convicted felon for this crime. Uh, again, you look at crimes like this, and it's impossible to quantify how much damage has been caused. Uh, and it's spread, it's spread wide. Uh, uh, I particularly like Mr. Dodge's comment that you know, it's chaos. It's chaos for a lifetime. You you look at the trauma, psychological trauma caused by this to a loved one, 
and your life is upended in turmoil and chaos. Uh, a young man spent a significant part of his life in prison for no good reason. He was innocent. Uh, that falls on you. Uh, so a lot of things to look at. Uh, perhaps the focal point of the sentencing is the plea agreement in this. I think a judge needs to give significant deference to a plea agreement, particularly when it's negotiated by a mediator. The attorneys uh, work hard towards finding, trying to find some common ground. Uh, a lot of factors go into a mediation, into what might ultimately be a plea agreement. So it's, I think it's a little perhaps arrogant for a judge to second guess those factors, second guess the driving aspects and basis of the plea agreement. So I, I, I've always believed that those types of agreements should be given deference. Deference, they're not always absolute, uh, not always agreeable, and do not hardly ever satisfy everybody concerned. And that's just the nature of criminal proceedings and mediations and plea agreements. Now, the circumstances, and I would agree with counsel, certainly the medical testimony and the medical evidence would have an effect on a sentencing, uh, this sentencing or any other. I think that's an important factor for a judge considering sentencing. In this case, it's perhaps a little more important than usual because uh, as uh, perhaps... Draconian as that sounds, we are contemplating life expectancy and what's an appropriate punishment for someone with a diminished life expectancy. Uh, frankly, you look at this crime and say the defendant deserves to spend the rest of his life in jail. I, I would agree with that. Uh, uh, but then we come down to, well, what's the definition of the rest of his life? So obviously that was a driving factor in the plea agreement. Uh, all things being said, I am going to follow the plea agreement in this matter. The sentence on count one will be life, a minimum of 20 years, so 20 years fixed. Count two will be life with a minimum of 20 years. Sentences will run concurrent, receive credit for time served. There'll be a fine of $5,000 on each count. Uh, defendant is required to uh, comply with the Idaho, Idaho Sex Offender Registration Act. Uh, court costs and victims relief fund will be assessed at the standard amount. Any questions on that, Mr. Archibald? Ms. Queen, do you have any questions about that? No, Your Honor. Mr. Drips, do you have any questions about the sentencing today? Right, if there's nothing else, we'll be in recess. Judge, I have one. Go ahead. All right, so that'll be a separate submission, you're saying? Fair enough. There's nothing else. We'll be in recess. Thank you. Well, that just happened. Well, there you have it. 
all of that for what they had already determined. Right. Oh, um, wow. The, the showing what a good guy this rapist and murderer is was pretty tough to take, wasn't it? Yep. Yes, it was. I really appreciated that the prosecutor was like such a good guy that he was out living his life, letting an innocent man sit in prison. Yeah. Sorry. I don't buy that. Yeah. So sorry and remorseful that he never came forward and was caught through genealogical DNA. And had that not happened, he would have never been caught. Yeah. No, no. I disgusting. And frankly, the fact that that presentation got to be that freaking long was disgusting. It, It really was. Wow. Here's some artwork that he created when he was in the fourth grade. Oh, I would have rather seen artwork that Angie created when she was in the fourth grade. Right. Yeah. Let's learn about Angie. That's why I, on the live stream, I put up a picture of Don, of Angie when that all started happening. Cause I'm like, Hey, let's remember who this is actually about. It's not about Brian drips. Cause I got to tell you, I don't give a damn about his artwork in fourth grade or whatever, you know? Yeah. 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 I was really glad you did. Yeah. Poor Carol. I just cannot even imagine sitting through all of that, Carol and her sons. Honestly, the that fact just, that Carol has survived to see this day is sh- stunning to me. Yeah. What you, what you guys might not know is that Carol always knew that Christopher Cap- Tapp was innocent. Yeah. And she has fought for his innocence for the last 20 years. Yeah. She, has. she fought so hard for his innocence that he and his mother actually had a restraining order against her for a while. Because she just wouldn't leave him alone because she knew he was innocent. And yeah. she wanted, not only did she want, the mics are muted. Uh-oh, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah. How are we muted? They're not muted. Hmm. We are not muted. Can anyone hear us? <laughs> I, I guess we'll keep going and uh, we'll see what somebody says. That is so wild. Because we aren't muted on our end. We are. No, but sometimes our tech uh, beats up on us. Yeah. I don't know. I guess we'll keep talking and we'll see. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> um, yeah. What happens if he lives another 30 years? He gets out. Right. Um, the thing is, he's sentenced to life 20 years fixed. Right. So he will do. Well, another 18 years because he's been in jail for two. Mm-hmm. You know, the stuff that they talk about medically for him, um, I don't think he's on the brink of death nearly as much as they want you to think he is. Because ankylosing no. spondylitis is an autoimmune disease just like RA, which Katie and I have. And it certainly mm-hmm. hasn't put us on the brink of death. Now has it? No, but his heart, his heart is questionable. Now, no, Supposedly. you know, back in, yeah, back in, uh, Earlier days of COVID, his lawyer fought really hard to get him released on house arrest. Yes. Because, uh, saying because goes in and out. Well, we'll just really talk. Weird. There will be a re record of this, I, or, you know, it'll be up for replay. I, I don't know why. I don't know why it would go in and out. Um, yeah. Because we're hearing each other just fine. So, generally, yeah. if we're hearing each other okay, then our connection's okay. So, I don't know. Right. Uh, tech. 
Mercury is in retrograde. But right. yeah, they tried to get him released on house arrest because the Bonneville County Jail was teeming with COVID. Yes. Yeah, and they said he would never survive it if he got COVID. And the judge was like, that's the chance you take. You're yeah. in jail, bro. Sorry. Too damn bad, dude. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing that you have to understand is that Angie Dodge lived locally to us. Mom was actually my neighbor for a long time, lived right down the road from me. And she mm-hmm. had come into our store a time or two and we've talked to her. Mm-hmm. And she had been this very loud advocate for Christopher Tapp that he did not kill her daughter. Yeah. And was ultimately worked with his mother plus judges for justice and some other organizations to get tap out in 2018, 17 or 18. Mm -hmm. But they got him out basically on early release. He wasn't exonerated. No, not until 2019. Yeah. No, they got him out in 2017 on early release with the condition that he would sign a document saying that he would not sue the state over his, uh, you know, over the fact that he went to prison. Yeah. Right. We heard some really, there were some very terrible things that went on at the time that he was coerced into a confession. Mm-hmm. And then after he uh, was finally, um, you know, he was released then they catch freaking Brian Drips mm-hmm. and catch the actual murderer. So yeah. he wasn't released because they caught him. That happened yeah. after he was released. Yeah. So he was finally officially exonerated in 2019. Yeah. He is married. He's working. He's by all accounts happy. I mean, his, his life is moving on, but mm-hmm. it's still just so damn disgusting. And then we had a legislator, a guy by the name of Doug Ricks, who put together a bill basically stating that if we, as a state, put people in prison or, you know, erroneously, that we will be financially responsible for that. And the governor vetoed it. Yeah, he sure did. Yep. It was it's the Christopher Tapp bill. The Christopher Tapp bill. It's going back through. They yeah. modified it and it's going back through. Yeah. Um, Christopher Tapp's also suing Bonneville County. You know, there's lots of stuff going on here, um, but it was just, it was unbelievable. So when we talk, it's silent on Facebook. I don't know, but it oh. isn't on YouTube. So sorry, guys, we don't know what's going on with that, honestly, but um, the replay should have sound. So we should be good. Oh, I think we might be getting delayed. Um we're, we're getting delayed um, chat uh, comments anyway, I think. I think so. Well, I think that about wraps it up, though. Yeah, it really does. That We just wanted to share that with you because that was a huge, that's a huge thing for our community. And honestly, it's pretty interesting to get to watch one of these sentencing, hearing, sentencing hearings. I, you know, I learn mm-hmm. a lot every time I watch a hearing like that. Yeah. Yeah. So... You know it. We're True Crime Paranormal with the Psychic Sisters. We will be back tomorrow with a um, another case and our live stream update. So don't miss it. And thanks for being here. Thanks, guys.
If you're enjoying this podcast, don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you're watching us on YouTube, you can always like and subscribe there as well. We also love comments and reviews. True Crime Paranormal is hosted by Katie Weaver and Christy Brower and produced by Christy Brower. True Crime Paranormal is a short girl productions podcast.